0: Beijing is conducting the most ambitious military modernization and expansion effort in the history of the People's Republic of China. And the more powerful the People's Liberation Army becomes, the more aggressively Beijing is behaving. Given the vast distances and expanses of ocean, when Americans think of the Indo-Pacific and the Pentagon's role there, they may think first of the U.S. Navy and Air Force. Those services will, indeed, play a pivotal role in deterring and defeating aggression in the Indo-Pacific. Fully funding and supporting a modernized, capable, and forward-positioned U.S. Navy and Air Force is vital. But what about the U.S. Army? That service plays a vital role in Europe and on the Korean Peninsula, for example. But what role does the U.S. Army currently play in the larger Indo-Pacific? And what role could and should the Army play there going forward in terms of defending U.S. interests, building partner capacity, and defeating adversaries. As Congress allocates finite resources to and within the Pentagon, and as the Department of Defense conducts its own generational modernization effort and develops new operational concepts, these questions are fundamental. General Charles A. Flynn serves as commander of the U.S. Army Pacific. He has served in a variety of important leadership positions, from platoon leader, division commander in operational units, and is a deputy chief of staff for Army operations, plans, and training at the Pentagon. He has deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, and now he focuses on the Indo-Pacific, leading the Army's largest service component command. I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased that General Flynn is sitting down with Bradley Bowman, Senior Director of FTD's Center on Military and Political Power, here on this special edition of Foreign Policy.
1: We
0: are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran
1: is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not
2: correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. General Charles Flynn, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with me.
1: Well, thanks, Brad. I appreciate you uh, you uh, putting this together. And uh, I'm thankful to you and your team for allowing us uh, an opportunity to have a conversation about this important matter out here in the Pacific.
2: Thank you. I, I imagine you have one or two things on your plate, so I don't take it for granted that you spend a little time talking with us. And before we kind of get to your current position and what's on your mind and what's on your to-do list, if you will. I I thought it might be good just to chat a little bit about your background and your career, just to to let listeners uh, get to know kind of who you are. And so I'll I'll start with this. Uh, What made a kid from Middletown, Rhode Island want to join the Army Infantry?
1: Well, you know, my father uh, was drafted in 1943 and I'm one of nine. I was the eighth of nine, five boys and four girls. And I just often remember he and my Uncle Frank who was a uh, Naval Academy graduate. And so when our families got together, you know, there were these great stories about their uh, service. Um, And I just often remember my father saying when I was young that in 1941, he was a sophomore in high school and they really all knew what they were going to be doing in 1943. And so I think that that service uh, or when he graduated from high school, I think that that sense of service that my father and my mother, who uh, for 20 years uh, moved our uh, her their nine children around um, to various camps, posts, and stations across the globe, um, I think that uh, had a had a huge impact on me. Uh, both my my father and my mother and uh, that discussion in summer vacations or around the dinner table or just a sense of service. And so um, so I went off to the University of Rhode Island and they had an ROTC program. I, I would admittedly say that I was a bit of a reluctant cadet, uh, not really sure uh, what I wanted to do. A lot of my friends were you know, getting business degrees in the 80s. And so there was uh, a lot to do that but I also didn't have a rubber nickel to get through college so it was kind of helpful for me to uh you know to to 100 dollars uh a month back then paid my rent so I was pretty happy about <laughs> being able to get through college on a um on a thin dime so um but yeah. you know I I got in got uh, got serving and um I found the people to be really uh wonderful and I guess when I looked up when I was a junior officer and I Saw some mid grade and senior leaders that uh, I worked for, and at the time, senior leader was like a company commander and a battalion commander. <laughs> right, uh, that's all relative. I, I yeah. sort of saw good examples of great people, and and that has an impact on you. And here I find myself, you know, 35 years later, continuing to serve. Yeah,
2: 35 years, and uh, you've you've had quite a run, in already in those 35 years, can you just uh, very briefly, if you wouldn't mind, talk us through kind of some of the highlights of the positions uh, that you've had uh, before this one.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I've i been fortunate to, you know, command at at every level. I guess it was uh, I commanded two companies as a captain, one in the 82nd, one in uh, their ranger regiment at 2nd Ranger Battalion. So the sum total of my time commanding as a as a captain uh, was 45 months. So that's very different being able to, you know, basically command two companies for about 20, 22 months at peace. Uh, I commanded later again in the uh, 82nd Airborne Division as a battalion commander. Then I was the G3. I came right back to that brigade, uh, same brigade, brigade combat team, first brigade combat team, the 504th. Um, really because we were on, um the conveyor belt in the middle of Iraq and Afghanistan and, and putting those units back together uh, as we were converting <laughs> to a, a modular formation from the army of excellence. And mm. of course, deploying all off uh, in those years, uh, I will jump back in time a little bit from 97 to 2000, actually was an assignment that I had here as a major in the 25th infantry division. I was the chief of operations. Yeah. Then I was a battalion three and I was a brigade three. And I tell you this because um The impact that that uh, assignment had on me the first time, particularly with the Mm -hmm. senior leaders uh, in the 25th Division and U.S. Army Pacific, I don't think I realized at the time the impact that it did have on me.
0: Yeah,
1: And I'll come back to that in a minute. So I left in 2000. I went to a joint assignment. I was an observer trainer at the Joint Forces Command. For the better part of two years, I did joint training as an observer trainer in what was then the deployable training team out of the J seven in Suffolk, Virginia, doing JTF training. And I then, um, and then nine 11 happened. Mm. And essentially from 2002 as a battalion commander until 2014, um, I was doing what most of the army was doing, which was going back and forth to Iraq and Afghanistan. I bring that up, Brad, because I came back out here in 2014, um, as the division commander of the 25th infantry division, uh, as uh, on the front end if you will of the what was then the uh, pivot to the pacific uh, under the obama no. administration right and i stayed here from 14 to 18 as the division commander and then i was the deputy commanding general of this headquarters that i get the honor to be able to command today and then i returned uh, and i went to washington dc to be the g357 of the army and then i find myself back out here in 2021. And I say that because I will uh, often refer back to the gap between really 2000 and 2014, where I was Mm -hmm. in the Middle East. And I Mm -hmm. recognized in 14 that, boy, did I have a lot to learn because a lot had changed out here in the Pacific. Right. But I also am thankful that I have the continuity of experiences from my time in the late 90s to, to 2000. And then from 2014 until today, because I really have been staring at this problem uh, since uh, since 2014. And that uh, and I've had the fortunate opportunity to have multiple assignments out here. Um, And so um, I'm I'm uh, I guess I'm I'm blessed with a little bit of perspective on uh, what's unfolding right now in the region and what's unfolding uh, really globally as a result. Of yeah.
2: You know, as as we talk about the threats in the region here in a second, it seems to me that perspective that you're describing is is very valuable. You mentioned the 25th Infantry Division. I was a uh, as a, a young lieutenant in the uh, year of our Lord, 1996 to 99 in 225 Aviation at Wheeler Army Airfield. Oh, wow. So, uh, well, then our past uh, yeah, crossed because yeah.
1: I lived at Wheeler.
2: There you go. I there you go. Wheeler, so, I, yeah. You're a slightly higher rank than, than I was I, I was a major. I
1: was was just
2: a chief your, of your, ops. Your career has been a bit longer and more prestigious than mine, but I thought <laughs> I'd mention that. And then also, um, you know, mentioned the 82nd Airborne. And just for listeners, right, you served as the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, general, the, the uh, G3 operations officer in 82nd Airborne Division. You also deployed to Iraq, as you mentioned, supportive Iraqi freedom and, and the commander of the 1st Brigade Combat Team, 82nd Airborne Division. And of course, listeners will know that in the news right now, elements of the 82nd are headed to Europe and uh, what a what a historic and great uh, division that is that every American should be proud of. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe you wear that 82nd airborne patch on your right shoulder. I do. I do. Yep. I've yeah.
1: commanded, uh, uh, with the exception of division command, I commanded a company there, commanded a battalion there, commanded a brigade there, and I was the deputy commanding general for operations there as a one star. So yeah. yeah. Held held a lot of time there in.
2: Uh, yeah. In yeah. They cut, ca- they talk about the brag mafia that, you know, once you get in there, they don't let you go. Somehow you escaped that orbit. I don't know how you did that. Well, but, I think
1: uh, I was yeah. on that conveyor belt, like I said, from, from 2000 to 2014, but then there it uh, I, I came here and, yeah. uh, I, you know, I and candidly, I think the army, uh, it was a good decision to, to put me yeah right here. I did have, yeah. you know, the, the experience. And I don't say that, you know, in a, braggadocious have to say that no. I had the experience as a major, and uh, it was very, very helpful to come back here as a major general with that perspective, yeah. particularly at that yeah, time. Yeah. So.
2: General, with your permission, I'd like to kind of transition to your current uh, portfolio, if you will. You know, So for listeners who may not be familiar with how the Army or the Department of Defense or combatant commands are organized, what is U.S. Army Pacific, and, and what are your responsibilities as commanders?
1: Yeah. So U.S. Army Pacific is a theater army. This is a key point. This is a a key point. It's a theater army, and it has primarily four functions. Uh, Its first function is as a Army Service Component Commander. So we man, train, equip, and organize on behalf of the Secretary of the Army under her Title X authorities, and we do that for the forces in Korea. We do that for the forces in Japan, Guam, Alaska, Hawaii, and for some forces at Joint Base Lewis, McCord, on the West Coast. Uh, the other role that we have here is as a, we are certified as a uh, as a CJFLIC. So we're a combined force land component commander. And we uh, went through a certification uh, right after I took command here last summer in 21. We also are a TJ Flick as designated by the Indo-PACOM commander for, uh, the, uh, for the theater. So we can work with combined forces or we do it unilaterally in, in the theater. Um, and then we are also uh, can be a CJTF. So if uh, we were designated to be a combined joint task force for, 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 say, a smaller scale contingency or potentially something larger because of the echelon that we're at. Um, we can also do that as well. So those are the four things that we do. I really wear two hats every day. One hat is doing my Army service component work as the man train, equip, organized for uh, basically 20 to 25% of the Army and the 107,000 uh, soldiers and civilians that are assigned here to the Indo-Pacific. And then my other hat is my warfighting hat, Uh, as the land component lead for Admiral Aquilino and the U.S. Indo-PACOM. So um, that's, in a summary, kind of the the two things that uh, I do every day. And I wear those hats every day. Uh, One hat for the Army in support of the combatant commander and the other hat uh, uh, for the combatant commander, in order to be able to uh, respond to crisis or uh, conflict.
2: That's, that's a great and helpful summary, I think, for folks who, who don't track this stuff daily, and, and especially the, the dual hat part there that I, I think is so vital to what we're talking about. For people that may not be tracking, you and I understand this, but you know the Indo-Pacific Command, for which you're the land component commander, is massive. Can you just talk a little bit about the area of responsibility? I believe in your office, you have a, a large map that has a whole lot of blue on it, and it's a really big area. Can you describe that uh, uh, that uh, area of responsibility?
1: Yeah. So generally speaking, uh, it, it goes uh, from uh, the borders of India all the way back to the West Coast. Forces that are assigned uh, to me uh, are also in that uh, span Brad. So we have active forces in the Korean peninsula of which I'm the, uh, um, general of camera is the warfighting commander for USFK, but eighth army and the army forces on the Korean peninsula. I, I am the army service component commander for the theater, uh, in support of eighth army. And then of course, um, then of course in Japan, we have forces, um, and capabilities that we could talk about in, uh, in Japan. Uh, we have some reserve and uh, guard forces that we work uh, directly with uh, dependent on their status that uh, go out to Guam, uh, go out to uh, the territory, the other territories um, and possessions to the COFA states, back to Hawaii. A key part here is our homeland defense role uh, we're doing that today in support of uh, uh, defense support to civil authority for COVID. That includes Hawaii, Guam, and uh, the territories and the Cofas. Uh, and then, of course, we have forces in Alaska uh, with uh, a couple of brigade combat teams and United States Army Alaska. Um, and then we have uh, what amounts to ten uh, flag officer headquarters here in in uh, in Hawaii. And then, of course, First Corps. Is at joint base Lewis McCord, with a couple of striker brigades, aviation brigades, sustainment uh, command and a wide range of other uh, core level, operational level uh, brigades and flag officer commands. Um, so it's a it's a pretty expansive. yeah, uh, yeah,
2: that's uh, there's a couple of things going on in that region. I, I, I sense, and we'll we'll get into some of that now. But before we do, I always, you know, in strategy, they say you should begin with the end, begin with the objective or the interest. And so what would be your what would be your your 30 second answer to the following question? What are the what do you see as the core American interests in the Indo-Pacific?
1: The core American interests in the Indo-Pacific, I would say, would be uh, that our um, country is a Pacific nation. And our interests are for a free and open Indo-Pacific, and that we are a great stabilizing factor for the region. And uh, if this region can remain stable, then I would uh, I would postulate that that would have global implications.
2: It's- well said, I, I can't improve on that. Uh, so, I, for, you know, based on my research with full deference to you and your position and, and the, uh, the information you have access to that I, that I don't, um, seems to me the leading threats to that free, open uh, and inclusive Indo-Pacific is, is China. Uh, so you know, uh, let's, if I may, let's start with China. How do you see really kind of focus on the military component of, of, the th- of the challenge or threat from, from China? Uh, how do you see the current and changing character of the People's Liberation Army? Uh, you know, the, the Department of Defense submitted its big annual report to Congress a couple months ago. Um, lots of great detail in there for listeners, but interested to hear from you. Uh, how do you see the current and, and evolving PLA threat?
1: Uh, well, Brad, you might be surprised at this. I, I think I'm going to spend a little bit of time on what they've been doing by way of their buildup and more time about what their actions uh, suggest. So, uh, because I think it's probably well known the, uh, arsenal that they have, uh, designed, modernized and upgraded over really the last 30 years. This is not something that just has happened in the last four or five years or even 10. It's been ongoing for a couple of decades. Um, so they have a reach now with capabilities and a, uh, I would say, a payload or a magazine or depth uh, that is uh, extremely concerning. But that is just one component. Um, the other component is, and I'm going to you know, frame this in a story somewhat. Uh, again, I'm going to go back to 2014 and I'll just take the uh, the land mass in South Asia between Vietnam to Pakistan. So um, and when I left here in 2018, a number of the things that I'm going to describe were not really uh, as deeply penetrated as they are today. So let me describe that. So the, the hardening of the Chinese and the Indian positions along the line of actual control in India the penetrations into Bhutan, uh, the nefarious actions in Laos and Cambodia, the the damming efforts along the Mekong River Delta to to choke fresh water, the the actions to create rail and road locks from China down into uh, Rangoon, uh, through Miramar and the uh, other G lock that they're creating from China down into Karachi in Pakistan, and then their Belt Road Initiative, because that Belt Road Initiative is is it's um, it, it's its global uh, network to expand its influence beyond just its region, and on top of the ports and ground locks that they're trying to create to move commerce, they have this uh, uh, digital silk road, if you will, where they are expanding their IT, their their downlink terminals, their 5G network uh, to create penetrations into the economic sector and the social sector to influence decisions and influence economies and to create what I would say destabilizing relationships um, across the region. The same thing is true out into other areas across uh, uh, the Asian continent, out into Oceania and Southeast Asia, uh, and then can leave and all the way back into the continental United States. Um, and so their reach uh, is uh, extraordinary. And it's not just the uh, arsenal of weaponry or capabilities or formations that they are growing, uh, experimenting with, modernizing with. It's also their whole of government approach uh, to uh, undermine us regionally. And then they have global oper- uh, aspirations uh, that are solely. Uh, the design of uh, the Communist Chinese Party.
2: Well, thank you for that. That's no, I mean that that was in, uh, incredibly interesting to me, and it's it's interesting that so much of what you described that they uh, these activities they're engaging in are, are, are happening in uh, in region uh, on land, frankly, and in regions that um, we don't often hear about uh, in D.C. Um, and I noticed in, in your description, uh, you know, you didn't mention Taiwan. And Taiwan kind of, I think, probably rightly dominates much of the discussion here. And, you know, as you know better than me, the former uh, commander of Indo-Pacific Command, Admiral Davidson, said, you know, he could see some sort of hostility in the Taiwan Strait in the next six years. Admiral Aquilino has said, you know, it's uh, that the annexing Taiwan is China's number one priority. And, you know, a lot of people um, uh, look at that as, as really kind of the, the pacing challenge. Um. In addition to the you know the the very welcome and excellent uh, overview you just did, how do you see the situation currently in the Taiwan Strait and and particularly kind of shifting balance of power there?
1: Yeah, Could, I I'd like to come back to a comment that you made in the please. previous question yeah, about please. the map yeah. because yeah. people see yeah. a lot of blue, and yeah. that's true. Um, and in yeah. that blue, there's a lot of sea and a lot of air. Uh, yeah. But um, a much closer look at the map. And a look, maybe from an army guy, or people that spend their time on the land with people. There is a lot of land out here, and there is an awful lot of people Today, six out of ten in the globe live in this region, and by estimates, in the next ten to fifteen years, you're going to have seven out of ten people living in the world out here. So these people in these nations and are relationships with our allies and partners in this region, that is the great US counterweight to the activities Mm. of the Chinese here. And I would say that land power plays a particularly unique and important role in engaging with the people on the ground, because that's where decisions are going to be made. That's where leaders live. That's where economies are projected from. And um, I think it's valuable uh, that we uh, look at the region uh, uh, from all directions in every domain and in every dimension the human uh, the uh, the physical uh, and and the and the technical uh, part of what's happening out here now I, I I'll come back to Taiwan a little bit so obviously um, you know there's a lot of activity and a lot of interest. Uh, in Taiwan uh, but I, if you don't mind Brad I'll use a little bit of a sports analogy in a way and say that you know um, the game of hockey is one away from the puck it's the things that you're doing away from the puck to create offense defense to seamlessly transition when you do get possession of the puck that's really important and i think that the indopaycom commander um, and our team out here is trying to, um, we're trying to get puck possession, but we're also trying to play away from the puck. And I think what I expressed there in South Asia in that landmass from Vietnam to Pakistan is a good example of where we're trying to, um, counter, uh, their actions and, and and continue to um, address the, the sense of sort of urgency about the Taiwan situation, but the severity that can come if, if China's actions, uh, which have been both you know sort of incremental, but also insidious, if those actions are not counted. And I, I think it's and, I, and I, I think that the team out here agrees that it would have to be done uh, not only uh, in the East and South China Sea and in the Taiwan Strait and, the, and in the surrounding confines of that particular uh, uh, geographical location, but it's going to have to be done across the Indo-Pacific. And I think it'll have to be done again by the joint force in all domain, in all the directions, and in every dimension. And I think that uh, that's what we're working on. And and I, I believe the that our efforts are uh, are are going in a positive direction. But we're in a race, and and that's for
0: sure.
2: <clears throat> right. You know, just from. I'm so glad you said that uh, because I really wanted to get at kind of the role of land power in the Indo-Pacific because, um, you know, I'm a big believer for my part in making sure we get the U.S. Navy and Air Force every resource it needs to defend our nation for sure. uh, And it would have a primary role to play, obviously, in any conflict in the South China Sea and in the Taiwan Strait. But, you know, you know, you know, chalk it up to me as a former army guy or, or but, you know, honestly, when I look at this as objectively as I can, um, I, I see, a, you know, two or three key ideas and, and you hit on some of them so nicely. And I, in general, I welcome you to push back on anything I'm about to say here. But I, I hear you making an argument about shaping anyone who's spent any time around the military understands the idea of shaping activities that you take before a conflict to, to either prevent the, or deter the conflict or help the conflict once emerges to go better. And then also I, I heard echoes a little bit um, and tell me, I don't want to read into it, but of asymmetry, right? Just because an adversary takes a, a particular step over here doesn't mean we have to respond right there and it doesn't mean we have to respond in that way. And so in that context, the shaping operations on land elsewhere could potentially have value uh, for a Taiwan Strait scenario. And then the last thing I'll say, and you know, maybe I have all this wrong, General, and you'll help me correct it, but um, the idea... The, um, there's almost sometimes a, a, a strategic narcissism where we assume that we know exactly what the character, the duration, and the geography of a conflict is going to look like. And you know, as, as a student of history, it seems like we have to learn again and again and again that the adversary has a vote, and we cannot safely assume uh, that the character, the duration, and the geography of a conflict will be what we think it is, and that it won't change over time. What did I get right or wrong there, General? What would you push back on?
1: Um, i I don't think I would push back on anything that you mentioned there, Brad. I think it's all uh, you know a good framing for what uh, I'm trying to describe and what we're trying to do and the value of uh, land power in the Pacific as it uh, enables and and uh, uh, supports or in some respects uh, can be decisive again, Mm. as a counterweight to the actions of the Chinese uh, as they, um, you know, uh, embark on an effort to change the rules a little bit. Mm. Um, And so I think that, you know, everybody's kind of agreed to play by international rules and norms. And I think in some respects, um, uh, almost everyone agrees to those. And it sort of plays by them, but maybe that's not the case always. Uh,
2: yeah, certainly not what we're seeing from Beijing, I would argue, in the South China Sea and, and, uh, and other places for sure. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Belt and Road and some of those elements as well. Um, so, uh, General, moving to kind of more specifically about kind of zeroing in on the, the role of land power in the Indo-Pacific, seems to me, just from afar and, and looking at this, that what the joint force uh, uh, perhaps most needs, and I don't want to overstate it, stated, but what it most needs both now and in the future for some of the scenarios we're looking at, the, the joint force most needs from the Army is air and missile defense, logistics, and long-range precision fires. Those, those feel to me like the, the, the three things that the in terms of deterrence and, and winning conflicts uh, that the joint force most needs. Do you do you agree with that? Do I have those kind of those big three right? And, and what's your assessment of what the Army can currently provide? in, in some of the uh, you know Army Futures Command cross functional team efforts underway to make sure that we're we're providing the Joint Force the air and missile defense and long range precision fires capabilities that it needs from the Army.
1: So um, yes, we do uh, uh, we do need to provide those to the Joint Force, uh, but we also need to provide. More and can provide more at scale for campaign quality, joint integrated, um, multinational um, operations. So let me let me pull on that a little bit, Brad, and take that uh, and and explain to you maybe a little bit about what we're doing out here. So first of all, back to the. Uh, the the area of responsibility, area of operations. I think it's important, and I hope I tried to describe earlier, right, that if we think about this as, you know, the place, being the Indo-Pacific, the adversary uh, of which there are multiple adversaries here, because we're spending a lot of time talking about China, but you have uh, North Korea is awfully busy here recently. Um, and then, you of course, you also have the Russians that are are playing here, and in the Arctic. So they're not just uh, active um, today in the European theater, they're also active out here in the Indo-Pacific. So again, so understanding the place, understanding the adversary, and then understanding the adversary's capabilities, I think is an important part of this. More specifically, uh, as I stated in the early part of this, the adversary's capabilities, I think, in this case, uh, China is is. Probably well known now. I mean, we, we recognize that they have um, modernized, upgraded and designed and built and are now employing a A2AD arsenal and other capabilities in cyberspace and in a number of domains matched to its BRI and its uh, digital Silk Road effort that is a pretty complete package on where they intend to go and what their designs are. So uh, back to land power and what we provide. So if if you don't mind, uh, Brad, I think what I would say is we're really trying to uh, do three things out here in the near term that support uh, where we wanna be in the future. And I, I guess what I'm trying to offer is that uh, oftentimes, We have to do things today, but we have to be accountable for the future. And what we're trying to put in place is things out here in a 2B posture in support of Admiral Aquilino and INDOPACOM that um, is about the future. It's about being ready today, but it's also about being in a position to be able to counter uh, the, the adversary and the adversary's capabilities in this region. So let me tell you what at least the Army's contributions of that are in the near term. And there's a number of things here that I'll try to unpack. So the first part of it is um, they've had an initiative at uh, Indo-Pacific uh, Command for a number of years called PIMTECH, Pacific Multinational Training and Experiment Capability. Uh, Since 2014, I've been involved in the Joint Pacific Multinational Readiness Center, so JPMRC, much like, and Brad, you would know this, it's much like our training center in Europe and just like JRTC and NTC in the continental United States. Well, since 2014, and I was the division commander, and now I'm back as the theater commander, and even through my time as a DCG, we've done 11 rotations in Hawaii, in Alaska, and in Yakima using a tower network that we pulled out of the National Training Center. Actually, General Brooks, the the commander, the the first four-star that was out here, brought that out here and sat me down and said, hey, I want you to put this into action. So here we are 11 rotations later. And just this last year, we put it in Indonesia in Garuda Shield because the Indonesians are trying to seek a way to build a combat training center Three of them, actually, one in Sumatra, one on the island of Java, one on the island of Borneo, because they've got a wide problem. So we're trying to take JPMRC, create a training readiness, multinational and joint capability and a center here in Hawaii and Alaska. Why Hawaii and Alaska? Well, because we have enormous capability in both locations. We have brigade combat teams. We have divisions. We have a core headquarters at Joint Base Lewis McCord. We have an archipelic uh, uh, jungle, uh, hot, tropical weather. And then we also have extreme cold weather, mountain, high altitude in Alaska in our training areas. And so that replicates the environment and the conditions that we are most likely to operate on in the region. And so what we're trying to do with Joint Pacific Multinational Readiness Center is to build readiness, train with our joint partners. And by the way, each of our bases in Alaska, Hawaii, and Joint Base Lewis-McChord are co-located with joint assets, air, naval, special operations, so we can build these adaptive joint force packages and project them into the region. Okay, which is the second point. We are trying to advance. Operation Pathways, it used to be, again, this was something that I, uh, that General Brooks and, and I started in 2014, Pacific Pathways, now Operation Pathways. In the early days, we were going out to three countries and coming back instead of paying for that transportation bill to go back and forth. His guidance to me was, I want you to go out and I want you to go to three countries and come back in three months. And so now what we're doing, though, is we're projecting using Pathways we're projecting our forces into the region to say to stay inside the second island chain and even inside the first island chain and on the Asian continent for greater for at least six months, if not greater than six months. With army forces in motion, accessing our army preposition stocks that are uh, in the region, we are applying uh, exercise-related construction dollars. So we can uh, assist our allies and partners with things that they need uh, improved in their training areas, airfields, warehouses, ranges, roads, et cetera. And then from that, we increase our readiness because what we're doing out there is we're conducting a series of tactical actions that solve operational and strategic challenges. And and through the projection of operation pathways in support of the two B posture that Admiral Aquilino has, that we are trying to improve our posture in locations not just in Korea and uh, South Korea and in Japan, but in Southeast Asia, in Oceania, and in the Western Corridor, Central Corridor of uh, the AOR, and then the third leg of this. Brad is to conduct a series of experiments while we're exercising. My guidance to, to my team here is that we should be in every exercise, there should be experiments, and in every experiment, we should be exercising. So, what we're trying to do is determine what are the areas integrated air missile events, long range fires, uh, joint logistics, uh, uh, command and control. Um, engineering, uh, port opening, uh, contracting, um, the application of our Army pre-position stocks that are on the ground or afloat, the exercise-related construction dollars that we do inside of each one of our exercises, and then the backbone of all this being the network and the network for not just U.S. and joint forces, but also a mission partner environment to open gateways up. So we can make sure that we can do collaboration, planning, coordination, and synchronization with our allies and partners in the region. And so that forger arm is a way for us to uh, create opportunities with experimentation that support what uh, the Indo-PACOM commander needs us to be doing forward in the region. And then also some of those service capabilities through integrated air missile defense network, long range precision fires, logistics and command and control protection that we can bring into the region um, and and really do a couple of things. I think we build readiness. uh, We deny the PRC key terrain. We increase the capabilities of the joint force and we increase the confidence in the allies and partners in the region because it's an investment in them and an investment uh, in the things that we uh, seek to achieve. so there's there's benefits for both. one one story, I guess I'd say I touched on it earlier, but when when countries uh, and and when countries are uh, trying to build, for example, I, I used Indonesia trying to build a combat training center. We know how to do that, Brad. Right. I mean, we've been doing that for decades and it's a live, virtual and constructive um, environment. And it has, you know, op for a real OE, you have an outside set of eyes to give you feedback. And I think the number of the armies in the region, whether it's humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, peacekeeping operations, counterinsurgency or. Conventional operations that they want to learn how to do these things they turn to the army because we know how to do training centers uh, we know how to do the academics we know how to do the planning we know how to do the staff X's we know how to do the ttXs and then we know need, then we know how to do the force on force field training exercises where you learn and you learn at a junior level so that when you become more senior those experiences are woven into your professionalism. So
2: one of the things that you said, one of the threads in what you said that I, uh, I think is so valuable is that a lot of folks, you know, working in and around Congress in the Beltway in D.C., um, we focus a lot on hardware, right? Ships and aircraft and, and tanks and weapons. And that's fundamental, of course, as you know better than me. But, you know, those things are useless, right? Unless uh, uh, service members, soldiers know how to uh, how to employ them. And that's where, as you know from firsthand experience, that's where the training and the exercises come in. So when I look at the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, for example, I see a lot in there about exercises and infrastructure. And that seems so appropriate to me. And, and everything you were talking about was, was in that lane. And you also talked about multinational uh, working with, with partners. And so kind of a, a two maybe lightning round question here. One is one of the debates here in D.C. is about to what degree do we need to afford position American forces? You know, do we have base them in the United States, or do we base them forward alongside allies and partners a little bit closer to the to the threat and to the challenges? Um, so that um, so interested in any kind of general thoughts or specific thoughts you have about the value of forward position forces. And then anything quickly you might want to say about uh, the quad countries. For listeners, we have Australia, Japan, and India, and you ask to make up the quad. My sense is that if we're going to deter aggression from Beijing over the long term, we have to have progressively uh, closer mill to mill relations with those three countries. And I'm um, sorry, I guess two questions there, value of forward position forces in your mind. And what are we doing currently with quad countries and training? and What more could we do?
1: Yeah. Um, so, um, so l- let me try to frame it sort of this way, like answering what land power, especially the army brings in conflict. I, I, I sort of gave you those three, uh um, Efforts that are underway right now and have been underway for a number of years. Again, I just I had the continuity of the command and the region to be able to pull those things and I'd say just advance them almost to a two stage. But um, I think that uh, we uh, can provide by forward position forces. Uh, we want to extend the problem set in time to give greater indicators and warnings to the national command authority. And I think that we can do that with ground-based sensors, people and things to be able to identify when things are moving in the region, in the place with the adversary and the adversary's capabilities that give us uh, an understanding of what is happening with the ground order of battle and ground um, capabilities uh, that the Chinese have. And so I think that that is very helpful. Um, I, I'm i gonna advocate the, what my service secretary talked about because I thought it was uh, really good. And it was to your earlier question. I mean, I think the army is the linchpin service out here because uh, we can provide things like and an advanced integrated air missile defense, network modernization, logistics, long range precision fires from ground-based capabilities. Um, and I could go on and on, engineering, uh, uh, army preposition stocks. The other thing that, the second thing that uh, is linchpin or a capability of the linchpin uh, land power uh, service is C2. We can provide C2 at scale. I mean, a, an army division and an army corps and a theater army can scale up very rapidly with command and control. We plan, synchronize, coordinate, and integrate joint international and interagency capabilities, literally overnight. We've been doing it for the last 20 years uh, with one hand tied behind our back. I mean, we know how to do that business. Um, Three is sustainment. We have a theater army sustainment command here, two-star general. And so to be able to coordinate joint logistics from Transcom, from DLA into the theater and sustain the joint force uh, is enormously important. Uh, King, I think, has quoted the Navy Admiral saying, "I don't know what MacArthur's talking about with logistics, but I want some of it." And so <laughs> that's something that you know, the Army can provide. Um, long-range precision fires, uh, Brad. You you know, I mean, you know the things that we're working on. Actually, we're, it's interesting. We're working on this with the with with the Navy and the Marine Corps, right? Because we 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 all know the value of what mobile, protected, uh, lethal, land-based uh, attack uh capabilities can provide and then the fifth one is homeland defense we defend the homeland um, and we do that today uh, as a tj flick um in fact we're doing defense support to civil authority uh, with uh with the covid pandemic and we can quickly transition uh if matters t- uh, change differently i guess the other thing that i'd mention to your question uh Brad, is that, uh, you know, I really appreciated recently the uh, November War on the Rocks article by uh, Dr. Jackie Schneider. And she talked about the Taiwan conflict. And what she really was, I think, sparking a, a, a healthy debate on is the role of the army. And if you take it back from, you know, a Taiwan invasion, because the goal here ought to be no war. That's the goal. The objective ought to be no war. But in order to create conditions for no war, we have to win the deterrence. And we have to do that without fighting, which is the essence of the art and science of what we're doing here. And I think that uh, the role that land power can play by being forward and by being either there dynamically, um, rotationally or even permanently, Uh, In those three states, getting back to the the heart of your question, um, I think we need to be able to do all three of those, have dynamic presence, have rotational presence, and have permanent presence. And I think we're working on that in various locations across the region to improve our posture, to improve our position, to be able to close faster and be able to extend the problem Uh, on the adversaries. Extend it in time, in the early part, Brad, and then expand it, right? Like I said, all domain, all direction, all dimension.
2: That's great. Thank you. Any any quick, as we move to close here in a minute, any quick comments on um, what more we could do in training and exercising with Japan, Australia, India? I mean, we're doing a lot already. What more, how can we take that to the next level?
1: Uh, so I think we're doing some great work in in, uh, in India and training with them, particularly with the Security Force Assistance Brigade. Uh, I'm going to Australia here. I don't want to get out ahead of that, but I think there's some great things on the horizon. We do some great training with the Australians now. Uh, we had a great exercise down there, Talisman Sabre, in 21. I think 23 is going to even be better. Um, they, as you are probably aware, they just bought, you know, $3.5 billion worth of M1 tanks. Um, so, you know, there's no tank force greater than, uh, the U S army. Um, and so I think that there's some work that we can do together to help them as they form up their, uh, their tank regiments. Um, and then Japan, I'm actually, uh, I talked to general Yoshida just this week. I'm going over there here, uh, pretty soon. In fact, I'm going to Australia and Japan, uh, to meet with them, to talk about some of those things, Brad. One closing thought that I just want to come back to a little bit, you know, the army is survivable. I think sometimes it's lost in the fact that we are survivable against the Chinese A2AD designed arsenal um, and and we can we can address these other domains while we're forward um, so that the air and maritime force can go into their domains and go into their um, approach, um, with a increased chance of success and survivability. Um, so air and maritime along with army ground power or land power provides really just almost a third leg of that stool that presents dilemmas to China and to Russia and to other adversaries that I think that's where we add value, right? We can be forward, we can see, sense, and understand, we can share those observations and share that sense of what's actually happening in the region on the ground. And that improves their survivability, that improves their success. Um, Do we have to be mobile? Yes. Do we have to be dispersed? Yes. Do we have to apply camouflage? Yes. Do we have to have protection of our signatures? Absolutely. Are we designing capabilities to do that? Yes. But one thing that they've designed in their A2AD arsenal is they've designed it primarily to defeat air and maritime forces and to degrade, disrupt and defeat space and cyber capabilities. And I think it's not designed to defeat land forces and land forces, if positioned in the right locations, provide an asymmetrical advantage to the joint force that only land power provides at scale. And in campaign quality, joint integrated multinational fashion.
2: General Think, I know you got to run here in a second. Last question for me. Uh, It's a two parter, forgive me. What do you need that you don't have? And what do you think Americans, our allies, our partners, and potential adversaries need to know about the uh, soldiers that you lead? What do you need that you don't have? And what do you need people to know about the soldiers you lead? And that last part's deliberately a softball, but I want to give you the chance.
1: I could use a, a few more dollars in exercising. That's why I'm so uh, excited about what uh, I saw in PDI. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful actually that uh, Congress and, and others have seen the value in being forward exercising, building relationships, rehearsing, um, and creating uh, a counterweight to the actions of the Chinese in the region. I think our greatest currency is our values, and that is expressed best in the eyes uh, of a soldier on the ground working with other soldiers who are um, really the security diplomats, if you will, out doing all of that work uh, on behalf of uh, of our nation. Our That's our greatest currency right there is when they're out operating because They're uh, they're an expression of uh, American values and uh, they're they're there for the good of the country. They're also there for the good of the allies and partners. And I think that that's an enormously strong message um, that you get with land power and you get it. uh, It's durable. It's lasting. It's persistent. And we're in uh, we're in these countries every day. Um, We're we're not temporal. Um, We're we're there in many of them. Uh, permanently or semi-permanently as a stabilizing factor to help them. And if we help them, then that helps all of us.
2: Well said, General. Well, thank you sincerely for your decades of service to our country and and, in uniform and what you continue to do. I really enjoyed this conversation. I've I've learned a lot. And uh, thank you again.
1: Thank you, Brad. Have a great day.
0: Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to Policy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.